0: Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon.
1: Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Russell Lehman. Russell is a motivational speaker, poet, author, and autistic self-advocate. In 2018, Russell was awarded Reno Tahoe's Most Outstanding Young Professional Under 40. He has already published two books. The first is called Inside Out, Stories and Poems from an Autistic Mind, and the second is On the Outside Looking In. Growing up as a social recluse with no one to trust, Russell decided to use the stories of his struggles to connect with an audience and initiate vulnerable dialogue. Public speaking gave him a purpose to be a voice for the unheard. Russell travels the world spreading hope, awareness, and compassion, while also striving to erase the stigma and stereotypes associated with having a disability. Individuals diagnosed with autism are at a higher risk of developing comorbid mental health disorders. Russell aims to shift society's perspective on invisible disabilities. In this conversation, Russell and I touch on the topic of ableism and the complexities around using labels to identify people. We discuss what he's learned about himself through public speaking and the ways he feels misunderstood by others around him. Russell lets us into his world and describes the extent to which his obsessive-compulsive disorder impacted his life as a child. He explains how he copes with his symptoms today and also gives us a glimpse of the stressful thought process that takes over him during social interactions. Russell leans on writing as an outlet for his pain. Stay tuned until the end of the conversation to hear him recite one of his poems. In this episode, discover what's possible when someone chooses to break down walls with vulnerability. And now I present you, Russell Lehman. Hello, Russell. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you for having me, Rachel.
1: You have such an important and inspiring story to tell, and I'd like to start with your background. When did you first notice something was different about you?
0: That's a good question. I have always struggled from the day I was born, but I was through my early years up to the age of seven, I didn't know it was abnormal to struggle so much. So when I was around seven, it occurred to me that it was abnormal. It occurred to me because I, uh, my mom came up to me one day and she said she watched a documentary about a, a Nickelodeon TV show host, the uh, show I watched, And she was saying how he has OCD. And I didn't know what OCD was. And so she explained to me and I told her, well, I do all that stuff. And so my mom really didn't even know that I had OCD until then. And She was quite concerned because I told her in depth, like, all the thoughts that would go through my head. And then I was diagnosed with OCD about a year later. So, yeah, you know, I I was so young. I was naive to know what normal, whatever that is today, what it was back then, too. So I really didn't know I was uh, different until around the age of seven.
1: Could you describe more in detail what that felt like, the OCD?
0: Yeah, so uh, OCD has been my number one nemesis. I, you know, OCD, anxiety, and depression—they're the three-headed monster for me because they all feed off each other. So when one starts ramping up, the, the other two kick in as well. So OCD back in, in, when I was very young, it entailed, you know, hand washing hundreds of times a day. My hands would be so dry at the end of the day they just crack open and bleed. I would look at everything that I set my sight, that I set my eyes on in uh, multiples of four. So if I looked at anything, I would have to look at it four times evenly, all the way sometimes up to 256 times, and I couldn't look at anything else until I finished that. So basically everything I looked at was taking up my whole day. A lot of intrusive thoughts. If I didn't do a ritual that my OCD told me to do, I'd be punished by my mind saying, well, if you don't do this, then your mom is going to die of cancer, or if you don't do this, your your uh, family will get murdered by a burglar at night. And, you know, I was very young. I didn't want to be thinking these thoughts, and I don't know why they're in my head. So for large majority of the time, even when my mom knew I had OCD, I was too ashamed to tell her that, uh, about the intrusive thoughts aspect of it. So a lot of rituals I never wanted to do, but I had to do to keep my mind at ease. OCD is Basically, a coping mechanism to keep your interests and thoughts at bay. So, it was very difficult, and it still it it manifests in different areas. When I it's like whack-a-mole. When I think I have it under control, it pops up in a different area of my life. So to this day, it's it sneaks up on me, and I only realize that it's really inhibiting my well-being until I uh, really get hard, hit hard from it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, when you were diagnosed at eight, did you receive any services?
0: Uh, so diagnosed with the OCD, it wasn't diagnosed with autism until 12. I've never received any services. You know, that's one thing that honestly uh, it it irritates me—not irritates, but maybe aggravates me uh, when a lot of people think I've I've come an incredibly far in my life, and people often assume it's because of services. You know, whether it's messages on Instagram saying what services did you receive or. When I gave a a speech in L.A. in February, there was a question from the audience. Did you have a mentor? Who taught you this? It's just all on my own. uh, I've never received any services. I did try occupational therapy, but the the therapist didn't know how to interact with me. For some reason, the outside world has never known how to interact with me, especially when I was a kid. They would just hurt me. I was that kid in the corner of the room with his hood up, not making eye contact, who was crying softly walking back and forth and i wouldn't talk to anybody other than my mom so a lot of people would push me and be mean to me just because i I wouldn't i was listening to them but i wouldn't make eye contact or talk to them because i was too scared so i was offered occupational therapy but that was about it but never received any supports or services aside from the support of my my mom and Mm -hmm. my belief in myself to push through my struggles and to live the life i wanted to live so no uh never received anything. And to this day, I have very little resources. You know, I've always kind of just been on my own. And that is uh, a testament to my own strength and perseverance. But at the same time, it's, it feels bad. You know, I feel like I'm still kind of at the large majority of my life. And still today I've been forgotten by society.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's go back to your childhood and we'll progress into how you manage these struggles today. So what was the environment like at home? Did you have any brothers or sisters?
0: Uh, I had one I have one older sister, especially when I started struggling a lot around the age of seven, eight, nine. I really stopped going to school, and I, I dropped out of public school in the fifth grade, and the more I struggled, the more family dynamics. I had a mom, dad and an older sister. The, our family dynamics were just completely out of whack. I'm very similar to my mother. My sister is very similar to my father. My father really didn't know how to interact with me. He tried his best, but uh, I'm best friends with my mom. You know, she just knew how to interact with me. Uh, she didn't have to learn anything. And so my sister and my dad were always kind of on one team and my mom and me on the other when we were butt heads because still nobody in our family was ever familiar with autism. So when I did have my meltdowns, even after my diagnosis, it was still hard for them to wrap their head around, um, you know, like, hey, Russell, he was just fine two minutes ago, but now we turn the TV on and he's like bawling on the floor. What's going on? And so my sister would get pissed off because, you know, I would interrupt her, what she wanted to do with the family. And a lot of attention was put on me because I was struggling so much. So she felt neglected. And then she thought I was faking my symptoms. So very rough childhood in terms of that dynamic. My family's always been supportive. I mean, we love, I mean, to this day, I mean, our love for each other is unconditional, but due to the misunderstanding and the lack of awareness back then, man, there there were some fights where, I mean, I can't get into it because it was just too bad, but uh, it was hard to say the very least.
1: How has your relationship with your sister changed over the years?
0: It's, uh, It's changed a lot. It's grown tremendously. We've bonded a lot. Uh, She she moved away about five years ago. She's down in San Diego now. I'm in Reno, Nevada. Having that separation between us has really helped. It's making us both take a step back and look at our relationship and realize that friends come and go. Uh, Your parents tend to leave this earth before you and your siblings are really going to be the only ones who are there throughout your whole entire life. The more I've grown as an individual, the more she has grown and learned about me. I think she's learned a hell of a lot about me just through my public speaking and what she sees on Instagram. Because, you know, growing up, I never really talked to her about my struggles because I felt she didn't understand. But her getting that kind of awareness through a, a filter such as Instagram or a video I might post, I think it has helped her tremendously understand my mind. And so we have a lot of good conversations. We try to talk at least once a week on the phone. And uh, we're definitely uh, closer than we've ever been.
1: Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. How about with your father?
0: Uh, Just actually, I, I was estranged with my father for about three years. My mother and him divorced two years ago after 34 years of marriage. But I recently, you know, started seeing my father again. And that's been good. You know, he was out of my life for a few years due to his own struggles. But reconnecting again, it it feels good. It kind of makes me frustrated at some points. Like, where did my dad go? Like, he's here again, but where was he, you know, when I kind of needed him? At the same time, it it brings up a lot of childhood memories too. You know, I've been having a lot of flashbacks about my childhood and it's painful, but I I want to explore my childhood. I don't want to be the type of person who shuts part of themselves off to avoid pain, I always believe pain. Pain has taught me everything in life. Pain has given me all my insights that I have. So I really want to explore more of my childhood. But definitely reconnecting with my father has been a process, very bittersweet. But in the end, you know, if we have anything at all when we leave this earth, that it's what means the most is the connections we make with people. So I always try to make connections and not hold any bridges. Mm-hmm.
1: That's very mature.
0: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's funny. I I'm a very complicated person, just due to one my my mind, and secondly, the conditions I grew up in. I was societal recluse from age of about eleven to twenty four. So, for the last five years, I've I'm very socially inexperienced, but I'm very wise, and I'm very much an old soul. Because of that solitude I had for 13 years, while other kids my age were out hanging out, you know, I was at my home just thinking, writing, learning. I learned that you know so much has been taken away from me in my life. I learned that knowledge is one thing that can be given to you and never taken away. So I always try to reflect on certain experiences and grow from them. And right now, my best friend is 45. My uh, a very close friend is 42. I've just never been in with my age group. I guess, because of my maturity, and that's, uh, again, bittersweet. Yeah, I love who I am, but at the same time, I I really don't have any social interactions a lot of the time unless I can give me a speech. So everything in life is bittersweet. Uh, You just have to move forward with what you want your purpose to be, and I'm fulfilling my purpose right now. So the byproduct of that, if it's bittersweet or if it hurts in some aspect, that's okay because in the end I'm fulfilling my purpose.
1: Mm -hmm. Could you talk about what made you become a social recluse? You said you were around 11 years old?
0: Yeah, just the, the, the struggle. Um, and then the, the trying to push through those struggles and being basically slapped in the face by my teachers or doctors or therapists.
1: How did they treat you?
0: <sighs> a lot of it was just um, ignoring me. When I would try to go to school, and I would have a meltdown, or I wouldn't talk to anybody, they would think I was lazy, that I didn't want to be part of the school environment. When in actuality, you know, that's all I ever wanted. Uh, I just needed a little help to get there. And I I didn't know how to stand up for myself. I was bullied by doctors. You know, I've been inpatient in in three different psych wards, and each time I leave worse off than when I entered. And the first time I went was for five weeks at age 12, and those five weeks, and I went there because I was suffering. I didn't want to live anymore age 12. If I knew what suicide was back then, I probably would have contemplated it. So I went through utter health for five weeks in a psychiatric ward and I went there for help and I was just berated and separated from my mom when she would come to visit just because I was crying and tears of happiness to see her. They thought she was enabling me. And it was just things like that. I was struggling so much and it seemed like the harder I tried to be part of this world, the more I struggled because no one was willing to actually see me as a person. They saw me as my behavior. Uh, and it wasn't even like I was acting out. I was just crying most of the time. But for some reason, they didn't like that. I ran into a lot of old school type of teachers and doctors where they thought I should just toughen up, you know, and that that's not me. I pride myself as an adult on being authentic to my feelings. And especially with regards to mental health, I don't want to hide anything. I don't want to be pressured by society to be someone I'm not just because I struggle with my mental health. So that was very true back then too. I am very authentic and I would show my feelings and a lot of them wouldn't take the time to see me as a human. The compassion I encountered was very lacking. So uh, I retreated back into uh, my house. I dropped out of school in the fifth grade, no supports, no services, no IEP. And I, I just... I couldn't function. That was a big thing too. Is OCD? My rituals were a full-time job. I, uh, you know, every waking hour I was on doing a ritual. And then if I didn't do that, I, I would become very depressed and very anxious. A lot of intrusive thoughts that were really gruesome and dramatic to think at that age. And I was also very much sedated on medicine because the doctors did not help me, so they would sedate me. So I was completely non-functional. And that's another reason I decided to stop trying. You know, it's only making things worse. I'm just going to sit at home with the only person who understands me. And that's my mom.
1: What were your days like then? Were you homeschooling or?
0: Uh, I don't want to call it homeschooling because my mom really, uh, it's not like my mom taught me. She would just pick up school from work. I'd complete the assignments best I could and she'd take them back to get graded. And I've always been a great student. You know, I've never gotten anything less than an A. So I could do my schoolwork really in probably an hour. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I couldn't do it because I was sleeping about 18 hours a day. And uh, just uh, if my OCD was really bad, uh, one day I, you know, I couldn't even read, I, I, I just everything would shut down. And so I, I would sleep the whole day. So I just got by as best I could. Luckily, I was very just naturally skilled in you know, the subjects at school. So it wasn't that hard to just complete. Uh, if I fell behind, I could make it up easily in one day. So I did that. And, you know, there were some times I did venture out into the outside world. Uh, when I was 13 and 14, I went to a specialty school and uh, I stayed there for two years. So I actually did, you know, go to school. It took a probably a year and a half for me to actually be comfortable in the school. And that that school, you know, was the first experience of trust I had outside of my family. They believed in me and I soon came to believe in myself. Uh, but then uh, again, once I left that school, I tried to mainstream back into public high school. And that was worse than any experience I had been through. Um, so after those two years at the specialist school and then the fail year of trying to mainstream back into uh, high school, that was at age 17. I just became a kind of a recluse again.
1: What was so bad about that high school?
0: It would be a complicated answer, but the main thing is basketball back when I was young, from the age of seven to 17, I did leave my house to go outside in the front yard and play basketball for probably at least two hours a day if I wasn't too tired. Um, That was my one escape from my mental demons uh, and from all my worries. And so I always wanted to play professional basketball. And I was really good. I think if I went to a a normal high school and I didn't struggle, you know, I could have honed my skills more and definitely played college. But when I tried to mainstream at a high school, one of my teachers that we had several meetings with before I tried to mainstream, he was also the head basketball coach. And I did want to try out for the team. And he seemed really nice at first. You know, we told him, my family, my parents, my teachers from specialty school. They told him who I was, how much I struggled. This is going to be my first experience in high school. And he seemed very understanding. But then, long story short, you know, he just played me like a fiddle for his amusement. You know, he would stab me in the back as, you know, whenever he could. Just, I don't know if it was just a, I don't really know. I, I try not to figure out the reasons behind other people's motives. But he cut me from the team, even though the IEP was that um, I at least be on the the very junior team because I need that social interaction. And he agreed to that, but then he said no. He failed to tell me when the tryouts were. So I showed up to try out when the school was empty because he told me the wrong time for the tryouts. Therefore, I only had uh, one day to try out where all the other kids had four days to try out. And that one day to try out, he again put barriers in place that made it impossible for me to show my skills. So he cut me, he set me up to fail. And I remember going home with my uh, parents, disgusted at humanity. I didn't pick up a basketball for about five years after that. And I just went home and I cried in the shower for about an hour. That was the first time I felt like my life ended in my, I, it feels like my life ends uh, <laughs> frequently, but um, that was very traumatic because the one, the one steady constant in my life that brought me peace, basketball, it, it I have wanted nothing to do with it after that experience, and uh, that all this is kind of detailed in my book, my newest book on the outside looking in, is on Amazon. But yeah, long long story short, that's again just uh, for some reason not treated well at all by the outside world.
1: Yeah. Also, it's a coach; it's someone who is meant to be looked up to. Yeah. To guide you.
0: Yeah, I know, and uh, all the uh, authority figures, all the people that I was supposed to trust in my life. Teachers, doctors, coaches, I never encountered one that I could trust until that specialty school in the form of a teacher. And then uh, when I was 18, I did uh, play high school football. I didn't attend high school. I was able to take online classes, but I played high school football on that coach. uh, He didn't get me, but he treated me like a human. And that's all I ask from people. You don't have to understand my mind. I don't even understand my mind. It's too complex Anybody to understand. I just want you to treat me with some respect, with some dignity, with some decency. And for some reason, even to this day, that is so hard for people to do. I don't know why. But at least that high school coach, when I was 18, he showed me that. And I'll never forget that man, Coach Jason Ellen. I dedicated my first book to him. That's sweet. He saved my life. He really did. He re, uh, restored my faith in humanity. And whenever I lose faith, I, I kind of look back at him and say, there are some good people out there.
1: What was it like for you to play on the team? Because did you have friends until this point?
0: I've never had friends. I say I have a best friend now, but I only see her. Gosh, slash, I've seen her once this year. Uh, and that's not because of the social isolation. It's just because it's hard for me to interact with people. My last true friend was around age eight. And then once I started struggling, I, I lost all contact with him. So I've never really had a true friend since age eight. During the high school football years, uh, played two years on the team and I didn't socialize. I was around all these peers for the first time in a long time. And again, I never fit in with people in my age group, especially a bunch of, you know, macho kids playing high school football. (laughs) So I was one of the best players because my OCD, I've learned to manipulate my disabilities to uh, become superpowers. You know, my OCD, it makes me very tenacious and driven and I don't stop until I get what I want, whether that's personal growth or uh, something I set my sights on. So football, you know, was a great outlet. Working out, I've always pushed myself to the limit. So I was the hardest worker in the gym when we were doing conditioning drills and then during games. I would not stop. I just had a tenacious drive to go hard. And so I earned a lot of respect from my teammates, even though I literally never said one word to them. When I was sitting on the sidelines, people would come up to me and try to initiate a conversation with me. And I basically just say yes or no or do whatever it took to make them go away. So, yeah, even being around those kids for two years, I really never talked to any one of them. But again, just due to my hard work and my work ethic, I was ultimately one of the most admired players on the team. And, and no one really knew how much I struggled before practice. You know, I'd have a panic attack going to practice every day and it was horrible. And a lot of my struggles are silent. A lot of people just see this interview, right? They don't see yesterday when I had a bad day and I was really struggling. So my interactions with society as a whole in totality throughout the whole of my life has been very unique and nuanced in that people see maybe 1% of me. But when I speak, when I, when I give my presentations, I think people see 100% of me. And that's why I love it so much. It's the one way I can really convey to the world who I am. And in turn, it brings audience together, too, to trust one another more because we only have each other.
1: Mm-hmm. When did you start public speaking?
0: At age of 24, I remember lying on my bedroom floor crying at night, feeling totally lost and... uh I knew I had a lot to give to this world. I knew how smart I was, the insights I've gained, how much I had been through, how much I had overcome. I really just wanted to share my message. And so I thought, you know, what the hell? Here I am, 24, living with my parents, crying on my bedroom floor at night when the other kids are hanging out with their friends. I literally have nothing to lose. So again, my OCD, I I was like, okay, I'm going to set my sights on being a public speaker. I don't know why I want to do public speaking because I hate talking to anybody outside of my mom. But for some reason, I got I obsessed about it. And so I developed a bulletproof plan. I uh, started arranging meetings with people. And for the first time, I felt passion ignite within me. For the first time since I stopped playing basketball, I felt that passion. So I gave my very first speech at age 26. So 2020 is only my third year doing it as a full time career. It's taken off very rapidly. You know, most public speakers don't get paid for like the first five years, but I was lucky enough to just have a natural talent for it where I can make a full time career out of it. And it's funny, people who always see me speak, whether it's in an interview like this or on stage or they see me posting about it on social media after my speeches, they think I'm a very social person. And I am, but only with one or two people in my life. I'm a totally different person when I speak like this about something that I really uh, am vehemently passionate about, which is autism and mental health. I can't make small talk. Like the receptions at, before my speech, speaking events, like the night before when they have receptions, I'm once again, that guy in the corner with this drink in his hand, pretending to be busy on my phone when I'm just like, getting me the heck out of here, right? But then the next day I'm on stage and people come up to me afterward and they're like, you were that quiet, shy guy in the corner of the room last night, weren't you? I was like, yeah. I grew up not having a lot of connections, and so I've developed this way of connecting with people that's kind of backwards. Most people connect with others through small talk, and through that, they become comfortable with this person, and then they can open up to more deeper, vulnerable topics. Well, I connect with people from the get-go by discussing vulnerable topics. I want to talk about feelings. I want to talk about our greatest fears we have, our insecurities, and, and then I can become comfortable enough to initiate small talk with that person. So my way of connecting people is actually kind of very much backwards than the average person.
1: That is interesting. And I wonder if through opening up to people and showing vulnerability, then they in turn open up to you and it becomes mirrored.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest reward after my speeches, because I always do a book signing after my speeches. And uh, I can't tell you how many times people have collapsed in my arms, you know, crying, telling me about their child who is homeless, who has schizophrenia and they don't know where he's been and he struggles with his mental health or just something about their own personal life. Because when I speak, I don't speak about me. I don't speak about autism. Yeah, I touch on those subjects, but I really generalize my message for everybody. My audience is anybody. And so a lot of times teachers, when I give keynotes for like School districts, the teachers will come up to me and just start crying, men and women, and say, I just really need to hear that because I've been struggling lately. So there are some intense conversations during my book signings because I really do open up that vulnerable dialogue and initiate that process of trust with the audience to let them know that I'm going to bear my soul for you. And if you want to do the same afterward, I'm here for you because I have a mutually beneficial relationship with my audience. They help me because it's very cathartic for me to bare my soul. And there have been times where I cry on stage and that makes me just more passionate about speaking about what I speak about. So I always say, you know, we're so fractured throughout this world these days, but if it's just one thing we all have in common, it's that we all know what it is to struggle. And my hope is through my speeches and through us realizing that, that we can use that struggle to actually create a bond between us all.
1: Mm-hmm. Then we can talk about the weather tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
1: So let's go back to that first speech that you gave when you were 26, right? Yeah. Do you remember what that was like for you? Were you nervous?
0: Yeah, it was an event really specifically arranged just for me. I, you know, made a contact about a year before that, and I, I told this woman my story, and she organized this event for me. And uh, I was very, very nervous. You know, I'd never really given a never given a public speech before, and. I remember uh, I had to get a a shot of whiskey. I was so uh, (laughs) nervous, but I was excited too. I really wanted to share everything I'd been through because not many people knew who I was. I felt like I was forgotten by society and I wanted people to realize that there are a lot of people like me who are struggling that people don't know exist. They're at home. Nobody really knows who they are. And that was me. So I like to say now I'm a voice for the unheard because I know how frustrating it is to not be recognized, especially when you're struggling. We need that validation when we struggle in order to process it. But the first speech, I I took that shot of whiskey and then I went on stage and it was only like a 10 minute speech. And I read, I read it, you know, it it wasn't like I just talked off the cuff. I read it and, uh, you know, I'm always very hard on myself. So I was like, yeah, that, that was okay, I guess. But then people were like, oh, Afterwards, they're like, so how, how long have you been speaking for? Do you do this for a living? And I was like, I, this was my very first time. And <laughs> so apparently, you know, again, like I had a natural gift for it. So it went very well. And then there was a specific person in the audience who recruited me to be on the governor's council for disability. So and then just kind of took off from there. That wasn't a paid speech, but I gave my first paid speech about uh, six months later in Connecticut. So, yeah, six months after that, I was flying across the country for a speech.
1: What have you learned about yourself from public speaking?
0: That's a great question. I guess I've learned from this whole experience of being part of society now for about three years is uh, how strong I really am in terms of my my fortitude, my tenacity, my perseverance, my resiliency. The last three years have been the best of my life, but they've also been the toughest. Again, people don't see me struggle at the airports. They don't see me having a somatic seizure the night before my speech they don't see me get extremely depressed when i'm in a new city and i know nobody and i really don't have anyone to text except my mom they don't see me having that meltdown a half hour before my speech where i'm on the floor crying on the phone with my mom saying i can't do this why do i why do i do this when it is such a toll on my well-being so the last three years have honestly killed me the stress is just ridiculous. And there are oftentimes I want to give up, but then I give my speech and I realize it's all worth it. And it, it makes me emotional now because, you know, I've been struggling lately and I haven't had the ability to speak because of COVID. And uh, I, so when you ask me, what have, what has public speaking taught me? It's taught me that one, I'm unstoppable. You know, I always say to everybody, the toughest times are reserved for the toughest people. You know, life is a test for everybody. So we want to keep taking that test and, uh, eventually get that A+. Plus. And every trivial challenge we come across is just practice for that ultimate test. And so I, I really run towards my struggles. And so public speaking taught me that the more I struggle, the more I grow as a person. Strife, struggle, challenges, if you accept them, if you embrace them, they ultimately help you flourish and becoming the best person you can be, professionally and personally. And then secondly, with regards to what public speaking taught me is My connection I foster with uh, my audience or with just really anybody. I never knew that I and I wouldn't have known until people started telling me that I fostered this connection or this energy I have to really tear down a lot of walls and barriers for people to talk about things they don't normally talk about. And that has carried over into my personal life as well. For some reason lately, there have been like strangers coming up to me, kind of just like bearing their soul to me without knowing who I am, but I will listen because I, again, I know what it's like to not be heard. And so I Mm -hmm. want everybody to be heard. So I guess overall, what public speaking has taught me is that, man, I was right to follow my heart. You know, I have a lot to offer and I followed my heart every single day of my life. And if I just keep doing that, I won't have any regrets and my personal growth and development will continue to unfold before my eyes.
1: Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. What do you want people to take away from your presentations when they hear you speak?
0: I want people to realize that life is about human connection, first and foremost. Um, After that, it's the experiences we have and the memories we make. Um, But firstly, it's the relationships we develop with people. And I want people to realize that we're all part of society. I realized when I was out of society, when I was a societal recluse, I had no obligations. I just did what I wanted to inside my house. But now that I'm in society, I realize that a lot of people take it for granted. When we're in society, there are moral tenets, there are societal obligations that we have to fulfill. It's not like we can just be part of society and expect things to be given to us. We, in turn, have to promote compassion to one another, look out for our fellow citizen. That's the core basis of a society. And people forget that. And so I want them to realize that, one... Being in a society means you have to take it upon yourself to look out for others, even if you don't know that person. If you see someone struggling at a grocery store, you have to help that person out. It's just a societal obligation. You know, you, you can't just be part of society for everything gives you and not give anything back. Secondly, I want them to realize what life is about. Our life's priorities, no matter where we live these days, seems to be totally backwards. You know, we we focus on societal status we focus on money we focus on getting into a relationship so we feel better about ourselves and so we look good to our friends and colleagues we focus on getting that promotion we focus on that new house that new car that's not what life is about and that's why so many people struggle behind the scenes you can accrue whatever you want in life but you're going to grow accustomed to it and you'll ultimately not be happy if you weren't happy to begin with it's not about jobs it's, it's not about money Sure. Yeah. Everything, you have to be pragmatic, right? You have to get through this life and you have to make money. But at the same time, we have to focus on what it all means. You know, I always kind of go back to the deathbed perspective. And when we're on our deathbeds, are we really going to be worried about that promotion we didn't get? Are we going to be worried that we didn't make enough money? No, again, we're going to be worried about what kind of connections we made, if we follow our heart and uh, what kind of experiences we have. And so people can use that. Maybe that a uh, preconceived hindsight that they would have on their deathbed to generate foresight into the lives they lead now, I think would be very beneficial for us all to become a more compassionate people, a more equal people and a more inclusive people. We need to realize that we're all in this together. And again, we have to look out for one another, because to this day, when I struggle in public, people see this grown man and they either pretend I'm invisible or they think I'm crazy. And uh, I don't know which one is worse. So every time it happens, I get discouraged. But then that in turn just ignites my fire more to spread awareness and a message of compassion and unity.
1: So you're spreading awareness not only about autism but also about mental health. Could you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. So uh, mental health uh, is my biggest passion in life. When you're diagnosed with autism you typically are at a much higher risk of having a a mental health diagnosis as well. And so for me, I think I have eight. You know, I lose count sometimes, but I also have bipolar, PTSD from a lot of traumatic events, depression, OCD, anxiety. I have panic disorder, which results in somatic seizures, which are terrifying uh, episodes. And then I, uh, I had a battle with anorexia a few years back, which still inhibits me to this day. So I have a lot of mental health diagnoses and they're all invisible uh, and autism is invisible. So I'm very passionate about invisible disabilities. You know, when I'm at the grocery store, when I'm at that, you know, reception before my speech, people don't see anything of what I struggle with. And there's not a second that goes by that I don't struggle. Struggle is just my life. Uh, It's normal for me now. I'm used to it, but uh, I'm only at peace of mind when I'm on stage speaking. So I'm passionate about mental health because there's still such a huge stigma about it. And I know how cathartic and healing it is to be able to talk about it to people and not care what others think. You know, if I go up to a stranger and tell them the diagnosis I have, they might think I'm crazy, but I don't, I don't care. You know, I, The best people in life are crazy. I, you know, I I call myself crazy. I call myself psychotic and I see nothing wrong with that. I, I love me. And if, you know, people want to deem a person's value based on societal labels, you know, they can do that, but that doesn't matter because the only opinion about me that matters is me. And I want that to be true for everybody, whether they have schizophrenia, whether they have borderline personality disorder, whether they have autism and are just diagnosed with severe depression. I want them to be proud of themselves. And like Dr. Sue said, if you don't fit in, you're going to stand out. And I want just people to be aware that what they do not see is always more important than what they do see. You don't see anything about me. What you do see is this normal looking guy in his 20s, but you don't see what my life is actually about. You don't see everything I stand for. So what I I talk about mental health in order to one, erase stigma and stereotypes. Two, increase awareness about it. And three, to alter the perspective of society. Perspective with regards to everything. Because we can never know what anybody else goes through in life, aside from our own experience. And if we alter our perspective and our perception, if we can take that minute to actually, you know, even uh, hang upside down to alter our visual perspective, that will generalize over into developing neuroplasticity within the brain to alter our perspective on what it means to be human. There is no definition of a human experience. And if we can keep that um, open mind and realize that our perspectives are only ours and they're no more right or wrong than anybody else's perspective on what it means to be human, then we're all the same. Whether we have schizophrenia, whether we're poor, whether we're white, whether we're black, you know, we're all the same because uh, we never know anything other than our own personal experience. And to be aware of your ignorance is the key to accepting that and learning and becoming more knowledgeable. We're all ignorant, right? But to be unaware of your ignorance leads to arrogance. I want everybody to be aware of their ignorance because then they can be open-minded and um, open to learning more things.
1: You know, as you were talking and describing the different diagnoses that you have, I'm wondering what you think about people who have these labels. And how society sometimes might excuse certain behaviors because that person has that label. And if everything is this spectrum, in a way, it's hard to find that line just because it's in the diagnostic criteria manual that, okay, now that you have depression, we're going to allow you to feel these things and without judgment because you have this label. What do you think about that?
0: It's uh, incredibly complicated and nuanced. Uh, There are times where, you know, diagnoses and labels do lead to ableism. And we talk about equality, right? Uh, But it really comes down to equity because you can't really achieve equality without equity. And that's giving the people the right amount of resources to become equal amongst each other. And so there have been times, you know, where I go to like a developmental center for children, right? And some of the staff with some of the kids, they'll encourage the kids to be proud of themselves, but then the kids become too proud and they come across as very arrogant. And people will think that's cute. If you have a disability, a severe disability, they'll think, wow, like that person is really proud of themselves. But if that was anybody else without a disability, or if I acted like that, if I was walking around like, hey, I'm really cool and I kept saying that, they wouldn't think it's cute. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm saying we need to keep everything again in perspective. Take a step back and realize, wow, uh, we're actually labeling them more by pigeonholing them by saying you're only allowed to display that overt confidence, But nobody else is. That's making them not more inclusive. That's making them more different because they're the only mm-hmm. ones who can display that confidence without judgment. So it it can be very, again, complicated. We make up for so much of our insecurities through the way we act, right? And that's, again, one thing why I initiate vulnerable dialogue is if we can just get our insecurities out there and just tell people, you know, about our insecurities, then I think a lot of things would even out. Uh, We wouldn't have different labels. We wouldn't have different judgments about labels. I mean, if you're insecure that you have autism, say it, you know, because there's no greater strength than being confident in your weaknesses. I'm very insecure when it comes to dating women my age. I actually feel more comfortable dating older women because I'm more mature. I have no problem. I'm an open book. And I uh, realize it's uncomfortable for people to say that. It used to be uncomfortable for me to say things like I just said. But once you can say it, it's extremely liberating. And, and you mm-hmm. you become addicted to being an open book. And uh, I don't want to fill any holes I have within myself by compensating another aspects of my life I just want to be real I want to be authentic and you know to this day society expects us all to be perfect I don't want to be perfect I don't want to pretend to be perfect I'm a broken soul I'm a tortured soul I believe I I, again I struggle every day and I go to some dark places Um, but at least I'm authentic and and I love that because uh, I think that's everybody's wish I really do I think everybody you know wishes they could but they kind of box themselves into a corner because that, they're now in a place where maybe they're married for 10 years and they feel like they can't, they've never shown their true selves and it's too late to do it now. Or maybe they're in a job where it's too late to do it now, right? So if we can just from the get-go, be real.
1: I completely agree. It is hard, though. People care about how they look, not just physically, but how they appear to other people.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I think it takes a lot of work to get outside of those boxes if that's all you knew as you were growing up. Yeah,
0: yeah, I I know, and that's very much true. And I don't judge people, I I just don't, because again, I don't know what it's like to live their life, I will never know. So yeah, I'm not saying that people who do compensate, which we all do, I compensate, Um, we just, let's be more aware of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like I don't think about how I look before I give a speech, I wanna look my best, right? Um, Yeah, we all want to look good. We all want to project confidence and everything. Um, But at the same time, we don't want to do that mindlessly. We want to be mindful of how and in what areas we're projecting ourselves in order to reflect on our insecurities. And it doesn't have to be overt to society. You can do it in your personal life without telling anybody. Just when you go to bed at night, think about what you did at work or at home and maybe why you did that and does that reflect a a, maybe an insecurity within you you know it doesn't have to be again like the way I do it talking to people I don't know about my insecurities can just reflect on them yourselves and again it all comes down to awareness being aware of everything you are and everything you're not and maybe everything you want to be because awareness is the key to learning it's the key to everything in life we're all ignorant but let's be aware of that and let's be aware of everything else in life too. We don't have to preach about it from the mountaintops, but the only way to truly know ourselves is to be aware.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. What are some ways you feel misunderstood?
0: It's a, yeah, um, man, I could uh, talk about that for days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess uh, I, I, I feel completely misunderstood. I feel like there's only one person in this world who completely understands me and no, it's not my mom. I'm misunderstood from the get-go just because all my disabilities are invisible, right? So when I'm I'm struggling a lot, I shut down and I, I can get this look on my face. So I've been told uh, that looks very mean and apathetic. That's because I'm waging a war on the inside, right? And I kind of get this determined look on my face and I might come across as mean. And if I'm in public, Whether it's at a council meeting or anything like that, people think I'm very standoffish. So they don't approach me. Little do they know I'm in the middle of a war inside my head. So if they did come up to me, I would actually bring me out of that war and distract me and I I, I could talk to them. So that's one way I misunderstood. It's just, again, my facial, uh, how I look, uh, whether it's regard to not seeing a disability or how my face looks at times when I'm struggling. Everything that goes on in my mind, people just take that and take it at literally face value. But again, what you do not see is more important than what you do see. Another way I'm misunderstood is now that I'm part of society, a lot of people on the internet, even though I try to keep it as real as possible with my struggles, they see me you know, traveling everywhere, going to these literally different countries. I've spoken in two different countries as well. And they think I'm living this great life. Where I get to see all these places, fly free, get paid to share my story. And they think I'm very social because they see posts with me on stage and posing for pictures with people on my book signing. And I'm not. I uh, I go back to my hotel and I I'm all alone. I I don't see the cities I'm in because I uh, they're they're scary for me. And so I, I give my speech. I do my thing, and then I go back to my hotel and pretty much cry. At least before or after my speech, especially after my speeches, I I get that high of what it's like to have that human connection that I've been craving for the majority of my life, but then to realize that it's gone and it's all my human connections are not steady. They're at speaking engagements where I have them, then that's it. It's not like I can go back to that, that speech tomorrow and have that same thing. I don't have a nine to five job where I can get that social interaction every day. I'm very lonely. A lot of the times I'm not very social. It's hard for me to connect with people on my personal life. Because again, like I said, I'm backwards when it comes to developing connections with people.
1: So I I connect
0: with people through my speeches, but in my personal life, it's incredibly hard to connect with people. And uh, so people think I live this great life where in reality, if people could get a peek inside my mind, I wouldn't wish my mind on anybody unless they are prepared to handle it. Is this life fun? I'm not going to say or say no. Who's to say? But the definition of fun is Is it worth it? Hell yeah. Um, It's only worth it because I can help others. I think about every week, Rachel, you know, again, people think I have this great career and I do. I'm blessed. Uh, I'm lucky, but there's not one week that goes by where I don't think about just running away um, to Europe or to somewhere in the woods and having a cabin and just chilling out and just because society expects so much from me. And a lot of that I put on myself. But people, again, they look at me and they think they see a competent man and they don't know what's going on inside my head. And the burden of having to meet people's expectations when they don't know how much I struggle every day is uh, very tough. Um, So that's, I mean, like I said, I could answer this question for days on end, but those are a few areas that I am misunderstood.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate you opening up about it. Absolutely. So, Russell, you've written two books now, and the first one was published in 2011, Mm -hmm. right? And the second one was last year. Could you tell us about the two books?
0: Yeah. So the first book is called Inside Out, Stories and Poems from an Autistic Mind. And that book I published when I was really still a societal recluse, and I self-published that book because I never, again, really had friends from the age of eight. Onward. And, and so I soon realized that I needed an outlet. I wasn't playing basketball anymore because of that experience at the high school. And I came upon poetry as the outlet. It became my best friend because it just it didn't judge me, right? And uh, to be able to write down my feelings and create an art form out of my daily struggles was very cathartic. So I had a lot of poems lying around. And I thought, man, except for my parents, nobody knows how much I struggle. And again, I wanted to let the world know I existed. So I self-published that book, selfishly, i say, you know, I just wanted it out there so people realize how much I was struggling. I wasn't expecting it to help so many people when they heard about it and they read it. And it's a short book. Um, it just kind of gave an insight into my life because there is a little autobiography along with poems. And so I can't tell you like how much it took me by surprise that people were emailing me saying, thank you so much. I can now understand what my son goes through or this or that. Or, you know, I've had similar challenges and I love the way you put it in your poetry. That was my first taste of advocacy. And that actually, I guess, was a factor in my decision to try public speaking is because I knew already that my story could help people. And I wanted to reach a further, a wider audience. And so that was my first book. And then my second book just came out yeah, last year. And that's kind of a sequel, an expansion on the first book. Uh it's about 500 pages and the first book was Inside Out. The second book is On the Outside Looking In because I've always felt like I'm inside out, hence the title of the first book. And then the second book, now that I'm a part of society, I still feel left out in my personal life because I, I'm very lost when it comes to my personal life. So I call it On the Outside Looking In because I feel like a lot of the times there's like a party on the inside of a house and I'm on the outside looking in through the window wishing I could be a part of that. And I'm not. I'm out here in the rain when everybody's having a good time in there. So that's why I called it On the Outside Looking In, my life on the autism spectrum. It's about 500 pages, an expanded autobiography, about 90 poems, very intense poems. And then some my insights gained and lessons learned as well.
1: Would you be willing to share one of your poems with us today?
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I will actually do a spoken word poem. And I think it's in my book. It might not be. I think I actually wrote this about a Right after the book came out. But this poem is about growing up in school being just treated poorly. And it's titled, What Does It Feel Like To Not Be Heard? A penny for my thoughts? I'm the one who has to pay the cent. A cold ear was what I bought. Now all my pennies have been spent. I have so much to say, but no one will hear. I'm regarded as a reflection of Dracula in the mirror. I'm not there, so I just disappear into my mind, or at least my thoughts are sincere. What does it feel like to not be heard? It cuts deeper than the slur of any derogatory word. To be observed yet deferred only exacerbates the hurt. I deserve to be heard. Now I'm starting to sound absurd. I'm told that I'm lazy, that I want no part of school, that I'm acting a fool. This drives me crazy. All I need is some help, a friendly outreach of a hand. But the only hand I was dealt was that no teacher gave a damn. Oh, oh thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it's, uh, I do a lot of spoken word poetry in my speeches, intertwined throughout this presentation. That's cathartic in its own ways. When I was just reciting that poem, I, I was taken back to my school days and to revisit past experiences um, through an art form, through a, A different lens through filter alters my perspective on what I've been through and how I can progress um, looking back on that with a different perspective each time I recite a poem. So I really like spoken word poetry. They're probably maybe the most popular things about my presentations, aside from the message I spread. Because to be able to get insight into something that you're not too familiar with and have it rhyme, there's something about hearing that, that auditory way of processing things. That's why I like poetry so much, because I can write down my feelings. I can read them to myself or literally speak them out loud. And using my different senses to process emotions, it helps tremendously and just really encompassing the totality of what I've been through.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a listener, I could feel that connection to you as you were speaking. The rhythm, it's like I'm going on the journey with you. And the words that you choose like creates a lot of imagery.
0: Yeah, that's my goal is to, uh, another goal of mine is through my presentations and poetry is to take, I feel like I have to enter other people's world all the time and it's exhausting. So if I can take my audience into my world, again, that'll alter their perspective and gain more awareness.
1: What do you want people to take away from that poem?
0: From that poem, to realize that that occurrence of what I just said about not being heard in school and how poorly I was treated, that is still happening today. So whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent, whether you're somebody in the, the corporate world, just realize the struggle that's out there. Uh, a lot of pain is silent. A lot of pain you don't hear about. But that, that very kid that I used to be, there's a kid like that right now. There's millions of kids like that right now. We have to realize the complexities of the, the human struggle to just get by. So I want them to be aware of struggle, of the need for compassion. Especially for people you don't know, because you never know what kind of day someone just had. So just be a compassionate person, even on your worst days. You know, right? on my worst days, if I ask for so much compassion from others, I still have to be compassionate. I can't have a bad day and take it out on somebody else. So even on my worst days, I'll try to. If I go to the grocery store, I'll, and I'm in the car. I'll try to wave to like a pedestrian or something, just because I have to practice what I preach, right?
1: Mm-hmm. It's all about that human connection. I'd like to go back. A little bit to what you said about feeling like you're observing a party from the outside looking in. Could you walk us through what goes on for you internally during social interactions?
0: Yeah, in my personal life, I guess when I'm in a social setting, if I'm feeling good enough to actually have a somewhat of a decent of conversation with somebody, I really become, I guess, infatuated because I, I'm still lacking that very much in my life the few like i went to a new year's party for the first time in my life this past new years and i've never done that before and i actually had some decent deep conversations with people but then i cling to that and uh because it's like i've been starved my whole life and here's a big plate of food and i want it so i uh in my head what goes through uh my mind during those social interactions is one i really have realized again through self-reflection my need to be seen as a good person. And I don't want that to be, right? Um, that's something I can work on because I don't need to be seen as a good person. I just, I guess I subconsciously need that validation because I haven't had a lot of social validation in my life. So I subconsciously try to make up for it in my conversation. I guess what goes through my mind is a lot of insecurities due to my lack of social experience that I reflect on later and be like, ah, that's why, you know, that... Uh, That's why, even though I didn't like that person because he seemed kind of judgmental, I still wanted him to like me because I want to feel accepted by society for once in my life. So a lot of insecurities go through my mind. And I always, you know, am very self-conscious about, you know, how I sit, you know, how I'm appearing to others, again, just because I'm not at all in my natural element. So uh, I guess, yeah, short answer, a lot of insecurities, a lot of questioning myself, a lot of dang it, why didn't I say this thing or I could have said this or did I speak too long? Is this answer too long right now? (laughs) Um, But, you know, then in my professional career, after my speeches, when I have a conversation, I have no insecurities at all because it's my natural element. So um, it's all about, you know, kind of bringing the two together and getting that good balance. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, Russell, it's been so interesting talking to you today. I would like to end with one last question, though. Uh Uh-huh. It's interesting hearing your side from that social interaction. So what advice would you give to neurotypical individuals who want to know how they can interact better with someone with autism or other mental disorders? What are some things they should consider?
0: I would say the number one thing is to shut up and listen. One of my favorite philosophers, he said, God gave us two ears and one tongue because we were meant to listen twice as much as we speak. A lot of the times when I uh, confide in somebody, they want to fix it or they want to ask more questions when all I really need is just to let it out. So just to make it known to the person that you're interacting with that, hey, anything that you want to talk about, you know, I'm, I'm a good listener. It's the simple things that I ask for And again, I don't want to speak for anybody else. I can only speak for me. I can't speak for the Austin community. I can speak in general terms, but I don't want people to think that, you know, everyone's like me or I'm like everyone else on the spectrum. But for me, it's just a little things, you know, if you're going to interact with me and you don't know me asking, you know, not deep questions, but worthy questions. I, again, I don't want to talk about the game I saw last night. Ask me something I'm passionate about. Right. Uh, a lot of people on the spectrum are passionate about, um, are very passionate about a few things so, and they love talking about it. So to be able to create that bond, you know, enter their world. That's what I'll say to keep it short is uh, if you don't know somebody and, you know, maybe you know, they struggle with their mental health or with autism, just enter their world and, you know, you can choose to enter their world any way you see fit, but it's refreshing and very much appreciated when someone enters my world on their own without me having to even ask. And those people that do, uh, greatest gift I can ever receive. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I really appreciate your honesty and authenticity. Thank you. Thank you so much for your willingness to open up and share your stories.
0: Yeah, it's been great sharing it with you, Rachel. I really appreciate you having me.
1: Yeah, you know, you speak in a way that invites others to relate to you, even if they're not on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your your work that you're doing is so inspirational and you're touching so many people along the way. It's like you've created an opportunity for yourself out of your struggles. You've come a long way. I mean, from not leaving the house for 10 years to now traveling all over the world to spread your message.
0: Yeah. It's uh, just even hearing you say that it's uh, surreal how far I've come. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I very, you know, I have a lot of Uh, Mantras about my life, and I do say I found my success through my struggles. Um, If it wasn't for all these struggles, I would not have found my success. And that's one message I really want parents of young kids to know and young kids themselves is life may not get easier, it might actually get harder, but if you embrace your struggles and you look inward, it will get better. Life will get better. So, yeah, the toughest times are reserved for the toughest people, and if we can all embrace our struggles a little bit more, we'll come to realize that success is always lie behind those struggles.
1: Mm -hmm. And for our listeners who want to learn more about Russell Lehman, you can visit his website, theautisticpoet.com, and they can pick up your books on Amazon, correct?
0: Correct. Yes.
1: Yes. I'll make sure to post all of these links on our show notes.
0: Yeah. Great. Awesome. On my website, I have all the links as well. So.
1: Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Russell. Thanks again. Yeah.
0: Likewise, Rachel. Thank you. Take care. Thank you you as well.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I hope you found inspiration in listening to Russell's message. I appreciate his outlook on life, focusing on human connection and promoting compassion towards strangers. Russell has managed to deal with his struggles without receiving any professional support and has even used them to create amazing work. However, this is his story alone, and I would not like for it to deter anyone from seeking help when they need it. As a behavior analyst, I've witnessed the positive effects that therapy can have on people, and I encourage families to search for evidence-based services if necessary. Russell's story brings to light the importance of empathizing more with people, since we never really know who might be going through a tough time. In his spoken word poem, Russell reflects on an experience with a teacher who didn't realize his pain. This may have contributed to him growing up distrusting adults, among them his occupational therapist. How can we, as humans, be more aware of those around us who might be suffering in silence? Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. Thanks for listening. Take care.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.